Questions of Jewish Law in Modern Times. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip, here with Rabbi Ethan Tucker, Rosh Yeshiva at Hadar, a center for higher Jewish learning based in New York City. And we are recording actually this afternoon live from Hadar, from Hadar's inaugural Halakha Intensive. This is a, a new program that we're running for the first time this year, where we've invited in a group of people to study halacha for a week. So, so tell me, how's it going? It's great. This is what everyone thinks like my dream life is. Sitting around all day, just studying halacha, talking about all the details of Jewish law. And it is actually pretty great. <laughs> um, it's, it's actually, when I was pitching this week to someone, I literally used the word dreamy. I said, doesn't it sound dreamy? <laughs> it's basically a, a week-long response to radio that we have going on here. This is a question that I think on the surface can seem very superficial, um, maybe even yes, silly or materialistic. I, I want to say that I personally am really feeling this question right now in my life. Right. Um, so I'll read the question and then maybe I'll share yeah, some tell, of my personal Yeah, I want to hear why, yeah. Um, this question came with a, a subject line. So the headline is, Inheriting Fine Dishes. <laughs> and here's the question. We've been offered a set of Lennox China dishes that were used in a non-kosher meat-eating kitchen. I have heard of a rule about letting things sit for a year untouched and then they magically become kosher and eligible to either milchik or fleshik. I love the use of the word magic in this question. Um, this has always seemed sort of strange. Are there limits on applying such a rule? Um, first of all, kosher that happens by magic is, is just it's it's great. great. Um, it's the best kind, and they can be milchik or fleshik. Um, I personally, I guess I've reached a life stage where um, there's many women in my family who are in a downsizing, cleaning mode, um, all of whom don't want their fine china but want desperately for the fine china to stay in the family. I've had three different women of the generation ahead of me in the past year offer me their fine china dishes. And all three sets, I would say, fall into this category. Mm -hmm. um, and so, A, I, I really see this question as very practical in that I'm asking it myself, and B, I really sort of see this as much more than a kosher question and, and see a deeper emotional valence, which hopefully will come out. Yeah, also. yeah. Okay, let's try to break it down uh, as we usually do to like, you know, a couple different ways you can look at it. So let's start with, well, fine dishes, right? I assume we're talking about China here. We're talking mm -hmm. about, you know, glazed... Right. Lennox China, Right, please. okay, right. They say, sorry, <laughs> Lennox China. Great. Um, so we're talking about porcelain. We're talking about something that's glazed. So let's just start with the specific material we're talking mm -hmm. about, which I think is one background to the question here. You know, something I think people can sometimes forget around the laws of Kashrut is that there is a concept of things that are totally non-porous, that just do not absorb anything, uh, what the Talmud refers to as Shia. They just, they're, they're not bulim, they're not pultim, they don't swallow anything up, they don't spit anything out, uh, they have no coefficient of absorption, is the mm -hmm. way we talk about it kind of uh, formally. And um, those things don't need to be koshered or never have a status. Like anything that you determine is in that category, uh, it's just irrelevant, whatever happened to it. 
so there's all kinds of Jews who put glass in that category, and then they will just use glass in that way, really without any regard for their history. Uh, Rabbi Vadya Yosef extends that to Pyrex as well. Um, and there are even been some recent poskim that have tried to argue that the same is true for stainless steel, um, that you're just dealing with things that don't in any way uh, absorb anything. There is a reasonable argument that glazed china falls into that category as well. That is to say, it just never absorbs anything. That's because of the glaze? Well, actually, even the porcelain itself, Rav Yaakov Emden, uh, back in the 18th century, um, does this whole thing. He's like, I did an experiment. I took porcelain and I weighed it and then I immersed it in water for a long time and soaked it and then I weighed it on the other end and it came out the same exact way. science. Exactly. <laughs> um, and he actually... Interdisciplinary halacha. <laughs> it's fantastic. I know, Kashrut takes you a lot of weird places outside of itself. And Rav Yaakov Emden actually ruled, he said, porcelain is in this category of it does not absorb. Um, and it's just okay to use it. It doesn't matter. And there's no like koshering procedure that, you know, plays out in that way. And where the glaze is relevant is he seems even to be dealing with things that don't even have the kind of glaze we have mm -hmm. today. So all the more so if he was willing to say that porcelain was non-porous, the kind that's floating into the West uh, in the 17th and 18th centuries, all the more so things like Lennox China fall in that category. So I do think there is a sort of background position here, which I want to emphasize was not broadly accepted but which existed and sort of has echoes where, well, maybe we're talking about the kind of thing that is already non-porous, which is to say the consideration around a Lennox China plate might be different than the tagine that you inherited that is a non-glazed earthenware thing mm -hmm. that was used for you know, lamb, yogurt, dishes of whatever sort, and now has been sitting around, you know, for a long time. So that's the first thing. Okay, but even so, you're telling me that's not generally the way that people think about China? That's right. It's not, I would say, people are certainly very hesitant, poskim, weigh in on the questions of kashrut, to just say, ah, oh, China, non-porous, and it's not really the way that people who are careful about these things practice. But it's always important to note that that's out there yeah. and it gets factored in sometimes in the larger discussion. Okay, so... So, so option one is, didn't need to be cautioned anyway. Yeah, let's, nothing to talk let's about. What's next in line? Okay, so <laughs> let's, let's not force ourselves to accept the premise that porcelain is non-porous, okay? I want to focus on another piece here, which is we're talking about dishes, not pots. Right. Right? So we are actually talking about things that, by definition, are not used on the fire, right. are not used on heat sources. There might be some things that are bowls, and I think some Lennox China things are enough grade that you can put them in an oven yeah. up to a certain temperature. So, okay, we'll, we'll come back to being concerned about that. But, you know, for sure, we're dealing with things that, for the most part, their dominant use is what we call as a receptacle for food taken out of something that was used on the fire as a cliché right. Um And in that sense, they have a different status where 
even though, yeah, we don't just say, well, use any plates you want with meat, milk, because they're not thrown on the fire. There is a standard that after the fact, the diavad, if you kind of accidentally mix things up with a plate that wasn't on the fire, pretty much there's no way for you to trafe it up. We don't make mm -hmm. you throw out a plate that you accidentally put the wrong kind of food on in the way that if you accidentally cooked meat in a dairy ceramic container in the oven, we might say, yeah, that's gone. You got to give that away, you know, or smash it. So that I think is important. We can maybe have some debate of, well, the soup bowls, are you like ladling hot soup straight in? Yeah. Maybe that I'm a little more nervous, but the salad plates are probably fine. It's hard to imagine the teacups and the saucers ever having had mm. hot non-kosher food in them. But even if you have some concern, there is another element here with when you're dealing with a set of china, they are yeah. secondary in terms of that relationship to heat. We're talking about kelim shniim, and therefore don't absorb things at least after the fact. I hesitate to ask this, but does cooking things in the microwave count to you as cooking things? Yeah, no, you're definitely right. The, the microwave definitely Some of the dishes that were offered to me you can't put in the microwave because they have gold rims, but some of them you can. <laughs> yeah, I would say the microwave does in fact complicate things. It makes things a clear shown, at least more plausibly, something that is being, you know, kind of treated directly. I don't want to say there's no way out of it because at the end of the day, the way that the microwave is cooking the food is sort of with direct interaction with the food mm -hmm. molecules and particles in a way that's not the same as I heat the pot and that's then what that's what the heats the food. Whoa, but still... Real kosher science happening there. <laughs> but still, when you put plates like that in the microwave, like they do get hot. Certainly certain kinds of earthenware ones. Right. And that probably does complicate it. So... I'm sorry, All but right. you're, you're right to have a little bit of complication. <laughs> All the people listening are like, why did she have to ask about the <laughs> microwave? <laughs> but this is really what gets us to, I think, the key thing, which is the magic of the 12 months. Yes, tell um, us about that. Well, without the 12 yeah. months, right, it seems like we have two roads we could go down. One road is they're totally fine, and the other road is, nope, they're unsavable and they can never be saved. Those, yeah. those are the options that we have right now. Well, so I think we have different axes we can play with okay. here. And I think ultimately where we'll come out is, well, when would we allow these different considerations to sort of stack up and get us to a permissible outcome? No pun intended on stacking up plates. Um, so let's go to the 12-month thing. Okay, great. Which does sound like magic. So it's kind of, it's based essentially in this Talmudic source that talks about earthenware containers that were used to store Gentile wine. So this is a whole other category. Never done an episode on it yet, maybe we will. The idea that wine is like a particularly high voltage kind of a thing. It's a, it's a social lubricant in terms of people breaking down boundaries with each other when they mm -hmm. drink it. It's also associated with religious and cultic rites. And so you're worried about, does it come from some idolatrous space? In any event, one of the things that rabbinic sources talk about all the time as being forbidden to consume is wine that comes from non-Jews and non-Jewish spaces, etc. But what do you do if you have like some really nice vessels <laughs> that wine was stored in and you're happy to pour the wine out, but is there any way you can make use of those? And the Talmud says about these, rinse them out really well 
and then let them sit for 12 months. Mm -hmm. And on the other end of that, essentially the idea is after 12 months, any remaining residue will have completely evaporated, completely disappear, and there will be no consequence or influence on anything you will subsequently put in those vessels. And that's actually the Talmud. It's not even a later... Yeah, that's the Talmud itself. Now, the question that it raises is, well, on the one hand, it's a great proof text because Gentile wine was something that was like, well, very very strict and very serious and it's connected to idolatry. On the other hand... Gentile wine, in most cases, you're not talking about something actually taken from an idolatrous temple. You just saw it libated in front of you. Uh, you're talking about something where, as a kind of protection, a zera, a distancing, you're strict about maybe this is less of an intense case than other cases of kashrut. So, okay, there's some sort of back and forth. But you do have the Chacham Tzvi, who was uh, Rabbi Yaakov Emden's father, who we mentioned earlier, talking about this as a precedent for even using dishes that were used for chametz on Pesach, mm-hmm. if they've sat unused for 12 months. And actually, chametz is, you know, arguably more problematic than just mm-hmm. garden variety non-kosher, though there too, you can sort of argue it out. And it's interesting. I almost want to say, but wine... But non-Jewish wine and chametz on Pesach are not really kashrut. They're, some, they're totally different laws yeah. altogether. Exactly. But so they the, are about food. Right. So this is where I think it's a little, it's a little uh, complicated and controversial. If you're considering it almost from like the science perspective of, well, the permission is grounded in the fact that after 12 months, there's nothing left of the food. What do I care what the food was? Right. If that's the physical process it goes through, you're done. But if that's implicitly being piggybacked on top of, well, the chametz was permissible during the year and the Gentile wine is just kind of like a added stringency, you might be a little more hesitant to apply this. Okay, so that's the question now. I think we now have the building blocks of thinking about how might you pull this together. So the best responsum that really pulls these factors together is one by Rav Moshe Feinstein. And Rav Moshe Feinstein is essentially asked about someone who did not grow up with any kind of observance in their life and has now decided, as the tshuva describes him, to come back to Jewish observance, to become a bal tshuva, and wants to keep kosher in the house and all of these Mm -hmm. things. And I have this set of dishes from before, which are really expensive and really nice. And are theirs. And are theirs. And they really would not like, and we'll get to how he interprets this in a minute, would not like to have to throw them all out or even sell them and replace them. There's some need here, which I think is partially financial, but I think unmistakably, if you read the tshuva correctly, partially emotional of, I'd like to be able to make this step into observance and for it not have to be that hard. And Rav Moshe sort of cites all the things we've talked about, saying like, well, you know, first of all, it is porcelain, and there were a lot of people who thought that porcelain was fine. And second of all, well, actually, most of these things are not using, they're not pots, etc., etc. And third of all, there is this view of the Chacham Tzvi that after 12 months, everything is okay. And he's still nervous Mm -hmm. about all of that. And then he what he whips out at the end is he says, you can rely on that in order to facilitate someone who wants to, in this case, right, do tshuva, who wants to basically 
fulfill a mitzvah that they feel they haven't been able to otherwise. Mishum takanat hashavim. And takanat hashavim is a reference to this discussion, starts in the Mishnah and then later in the Talmud, about someone who steals a beam and they build their entire house with this stolen beam and they then feel terrible about it. And takanat hashavim is you don't make them tear down the entire house to return the beam. They just have to pay back the value of the beam, even though the initial person is kind of getting shafted by not getting that beam back. And the reason is takanara shavim, you have to basically pave the way for people to make these kinds of shifts. And what he sees here is he feels an obligation to essentially make it easy, but not easy in the sense of like it's not hard, but sort of almost like as seamless as possible for this person to be able to start keeping kosher in their house. It still feels a little extreme to me in that you have to come at it from a place of if the tshuva won't happen without, you know, if tshuva requires burning my house down, I'm not going to do that. I can't dismantle my entire house. And it sounds like his understanding from this question that he was asked was, does becoming bal tshuva require dismantling my whole household or not? Um, so I'm curious to hear from you reading his chuba if you think that his chuba in that situation actually applies to someone like me. It's not really like kashrut in my home is up for grabs and if you tell me I can't take my grandmother's dishes, I'm going to stop keeping kosher. That's not really on the table, so to speak. Right. Um, pun, <laughs> nice. in- pun intended at my house. Um, so... Like, do I still get to use this chuva, or is it not relevant to me, actually? Yeah, so I'll, I'll comment on what I think he's doing and then and give you a thought and, and, and we can sort of talk out where it leaves us. The reason I think that Rav Moshe's chuva does have some degree of sort of an emotional and not just the financial element is, you know, it's not like that impossible to sell your dishes in some way, recoup some of the cost, and then buy something that's maybe a little cheaper and come away with a perfectly nice set. Mm -hmm. Um, And sure, it'll cost something. Will it cost like that much more than a couple years of buying a lulav and an etrog? And this, like, you know, I don't know the scope of what we're dealing with here in terms of a, it doesn't seem like it's a catering hall. We're talking about one person and their set of dishes. And in that sense, while there is financial loss, and I'm not minimizing that, it does seem to me that Rav Moshe is also sensitive here to the notion that um, if you make people feel like in order to kind of go from one stage to another, uh, they have to be like completely discontinuous with, you know, what they had or where they came from and all of that. Um, that is not a good place to be, particularly when you have all of these reasonable interpretations of the situation lurking in the background that make it fine, right? This is where the porcelain piece is important. He's sort of like, you know, let's remember, like, Rabbi Yaakov Emden did say this was okay, and even if that didn't become conventional, that feels central. I sort of pick up on that cue and the guidance I would give to someone in this situation is essentially, yeah, there's some degree of like emotional assessment that I think you need to make. If really it will be just as fine for you to part with these dishes and be able to have something else, and it's just a matter of convenience, 
Well, think about it. Is there someone you know or a goodwill shop where you're going to give some amount of money to tzedakah this year? Maybe this year, like the amazing thing you're giving is like an incredible set of dishes that someone who otherwise would not be able to have them will get them. And that's going to actually sort of fulfill the honor of, you know, whoever was there, etc. And sometimes I think, yeah, if people are asking this question just from, well, I'd love to, you know, not throw away this... Uh, this $200 uh, if I didn't have to, if that's, let's say, the right. end cost that comes out. it was only a out, financial barrier. Yeah, I then might say, well, were you going to give more than $200 to tzedakah this year? Maybe you should give this. And, you know, you write that off of your maaser safim, like your tithing, right. you know, that you would otherwise do. And, and that's the right way to go. But sometimes I think people have narratives of, you know, these were my boobies dishes. Right. And I've become observant but I don't really want to feel like my boobies dishes were trafe with like a capital T, right. even if locally right. I can't use them. And to the extent there's a pathway whereby it's almost like I can kosher the dishes in quotes by them having had enough space from that, but I'm bringing my grandmother's legacy into my kosher home. Mm. That feels to me like an extension of Takanara Shavim, particularly when you have all these other factors that are potentially warranted leniencies. Right. I feel that very acutely in the ways that I feel like I've inherited my Judaism dafka from these women from whom I've also inherited these trafe dishes. Um, you know, it's like I get both of their legacies with those dishes. Yeah, and I think that's powerful. And I think, look, this is a great example where a lot of times halacha working at its best lays out kind of very clearly here are the factors on the table here are the things i think we need answers to and quite frankly you the questioner are probably the only one who can answer the factual questions that the law will then you know build off of and produce some kind of guidance and outcome yeah i, I want to give one other reflection on the 12 month magic phenomenon which is, and I think we've discussed this also on this podcast in the past, the ways in which the rituals around kashrut are both logical and sometimes somewhat science-based and also sometimes not at all science-based or not at all logical and really ritual. And it's about doing an action that will turn something from not permitted to permitted. Um, and just how different it feels to me, the difference between saying... I need them to sit for 12 months, and they've been sitting in my Bubby's basement for eight years, so they're fine, and I can use them now, versus I'm going to put them aside. I inherited them. I'm going to put them aside for a year, and at the end of the year, I'm going to take them into my kitchen. Um, the second one, to me, really feels like an actual a ritual act. Um, taking a moment, marking it, saying there is something that needs to happen. I can't just bring these directly into my kitchen. Um, and maybe the eight years sitting in the basement is also feels like a ritual act. It's like they had a, they had time, you know, for the for the wine to dry, so to speak. Um, and that it's it doesn't actually feel so much like magic in the way that just saying like, ta-da, porcelain is fine, goes straight from the dishwasher into my into my cabinet. Yeah, there is something I think really strong about that because, you know, in in many cases, if you inherited like a pot, you would just kosher it, right? The only reason we're having this mm -hmm. discussion is that things like China dishes are kind of either non-porous 
or they're earthenware <laughs> and we think that earthenware can't in any way be koshered. And I like the way you're formulating it. It's almost like when you're stuck in this situation, it's like the koshering ritual becomes, right. I put it aside for a year. And even though we might not say that as we saw just on its own, you know, with like a random ceramic pot, if it's something where you already feel like maybe I don't need to kosher this thing at all, but there are these other factors that make it feel like I should and want to, that really does become the way you do it. Yeah. I'll, um, I'll just end by, you know, saying I, I really do understand this as a, as much more than just a kosher, it's, it's an interesting question where potentially dishes, I think, are sometimes really a stand-in for what are we inheriting and what are we asked to change about ourselves and not inherit and let go of and what in turn do we inherit and and rise up and in the ways in which our table is our is our offering today that which dishes we put on the table really matters to some to some people and to some extent thanks have a halachic question you'd like answered on the show email us at halacha at hadar.org or you could leave us a voicemail message at 215-297-4254. If you enjoy listening to Responsa Radio, please consider making a donation to Hadar at www.hadar.org or Jewish Public Media at jpmedia.co. Responsa Radio is a project of the Center for Jewish Law and Values in Hadar and is produced by Jewish Public Media, which creates, curates, and promotes excellent Jewish content.